0: Hi, I'm Dr. Alice Gorman, and you're listening to The Conversation. I'm speaking with astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield, who retired last year after a distinguished career as a pilot and an astronaut. So the first question I'd like to ask you is about your experiences in space. When you are in space, on the International Space Station, for example, when you're going about your daily routines... Do you find that you're unconscious of being in space, or is there something that will just pull you into an awareness that you're not on Earth anymore?
1: Very seldom do you forget you're there, Alice. Actually, it's it's more so than on Earth um, because of the surreality of it. Uh, you can be focused on an individual individual task, but but the uh, the bizarre repeal of the laws of gravity are such that it. Um, it's constantly slightly startling as to how things behave. And every time you float by the window, the entire world is pouring by. So even if you do manage to delude yourself and forget momentarily where you are, there's, there's some great physical reminder around you that uh, that um, startles you and oh, yeah. brings, it, brings it back to the fore uh, fairly quickly. So, no, I don't think I ever forgot.
0: Now, you've said that Australia is your favorite landmass to look at while you're in orbit. What do you think of when you see Australia from space?
1: Uh, Australia is um, uh, sort of uh, multi-personality from space. Depends on the time of day, and and of course the regions are so distinctly different. Uh, At night time, so much of the population lives along the coast that it's almost necklace-like. And and Mm. it's beautiful to look at, the uh, the twinkling of the lights of Australia along the coast. in daytime, of course, the, the lush coastal areas are so radically different than the outback, and the outback is like nowhere on earth. The, the, the um, intensely dry um, and ancient nature of the outback it just uh, pours into your eyes from orbit because of the colors and the textures, and they're, they're unlike anywhere on earth. And so, it's the variety of it that's interesting: the, the big mud flats of the uh, of the north northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming across Perth, which is just so bizarre to see after crossing the whole Indian Ocean—it's it, a long way across—and there's very little traffic, and to see that that uh, corner of Australia up mm. here with uh, with the city down there—it's just uh, there's so much variety, and yet also so much raw, untouched nature that it's quite fascinating to look at. Crossing Canada, so much of it is black and white because it's colder, there's often snow, it's, it's a lot of trees and rocks, and, and, and almost just straight two-tone, whereas Australia is an artist's brush, an artist's palette of color. So it's, uh, you, you just wonder at the ancient nature of it and the, uh, and the unconscious beauty of it as you cross.
0: Now, lots of people have explored the experience of the senses in space, but I've not seen very much written about touch. Do you notice that touch becomes something different when you're inside the space station or when you're outside in a spacesuit?
1: Um, it's unusual to never touch things. You're, just where you are sitting and where I'm sitting right now, we're in really hard physical contact with several things simultaneously. Your feet are pushing, uh, our, our rear ends are pushing down onto our chairs, mm. but our clothes are being pulled down onto us, and our hair is pulled down onto our body. You're, you're constantly, in, by the weight of your body alone, you're in hard physical contact with something at all times. So to be weightless um, removes that and you only touch things with the very lightest most delicate of mm. of, uh, of forces and and in fact you um you you don't even have your clothes hanging on you your clothes are just floating near you so it's uh, it's it's um, magical feeling you and you just you delicately hold on to things as, as if uh, as if you were floating in a pool and you're just sort of very elegantly holding on to the side of the pool with one finger and you're like that all the time and when you get back and suddenly you are squished into your chair and rammed down by the unremitting oppression of gravity squished down into the into the earth again it just feels so unfair
0: <laughs> it feels
1: like 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 uh, like Gulliver with all the little dragging them mm. down with a little string suddenly it's, it's just a bizarre um, two-dimensional feeling after mm. having so effortlessly three-dimensional
0: Something I'm really interested in is how people sort of form emotional connections to different space hardware and you've been on the Russian space station Mir and of course the International Space Station and most of Mir is now at the bottom of the ocean and the International Space Station probably is going to be deorbited sometime maybe in the next six or seven years?
1: No, probably, I would guess, 16 years.
0: Oh, that's very encouraging and positive. Um, But how did you feel when Mir deorbited, And if the same sort of thing happens to the ISS, how do you think that will make you feel?
1: Uh, A little bit wistful. uh, But it's also normal. I mean, uh, death is just as much a part of life as anything else. It's a natural conclusion to things. And no machine lasts forever. And... uh, I've been a pilot my whole life, and a lot of the airplanes that I flew are now in museums or, or are mounted on a pedestal weathering somewhere or have been crushed up into um into new uh, soda pop cans, you know, so i you can get all melancholy and worried about it. Um, and, and at the time of passing, it is melancholy for me. it's it's a. Uh, uh, often it's an unheralded end to a magnificent life.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, we we don't have big funerals for machines normally. And i uh, when I was a, a fighter pilot, I flew an airplane called the A7, great little airplane. And I took two of them out to the um, the airport airplane graveyard. Uh, we call it mm-hmm. a boneyard. It's out in Davis Monthan in um, Tucson, Arizona. And so I took those airplanes on their last flight, where I took them across the country and then. Uh, was going to land them at this airport, and they would sit and, and mm-hmm. rot away for all eternity in the, uh, in the dryness of the um, of the desert of Arizona or New Mexico. But I. Um what I asked to do from, from uh, tra- air traffic control was to leave me up as high as I could for as long as I could until they could clear me and give me the airspace all the way down to the airport. Mm-hmm. And then I took that airplane and I looped it and I rolled it and I roared it around and brought it into the break at maximum speed and horsed it around and slammed it on the ground
0: mm-hmm.
1: and shut down the airplane for the very last time. Because that airplane was a survivor. That airplane. Had had done its job for its entire mm. existence until it had been overcome by newer ideas and newer technologies. And and I felt I owed that airplane uh, a measure of respect, in that it, it had served uncomplainingly and magnificently mm. through its entire life. And I feel the same way about Mir. It was an amazing uh, design, and we learned a huge amount from Mir. And and I'm sure I'll feel the same way about the space mm. station, but it's got a lot of miles left <laughs> to go yet in its life. It's it's just uh, it's only been really fully up as a laboratory for three or four years, so it's, uh, it's got a lot of work to do yet before it, it's ready to be put out to pasture.
0: I'm very glad about that. I like the ISS. Now, the ISS often has to make, well, maybe not often, but sometimes has to maneuver itself to avoid collision with, bits of orbital debris, and I know you're very big on preparation, on, on mentally and, and physically preparing for all the kinds of different events that might happen in space. So how do you actually prepare for the thought that, or, or for the reality of a collision with orbital debris? What, what are the processes that you go through and what are the things that you think about?
1: Uh, well... We prepare for de- uh, depressurization, of course. I- if you have a puncture in the space station, if a small piece of debris comes through and pops a hole, you'll have a very small amount of time to react properly to it and the the immediate safe haven is your um the spaceship that you came up in, the little Soyuz, the Russian spaceship. Mm. It's like a lifeboat almost uh, a- attached to the space station so if we suddenly get the alarms going off in the dark of night and you look and see that it's a depressurization uh, grab an oxygen mask and start racing make sure we have everybody at race and go into the soyuz make sure that the orbital debris didn't hit the soyuz because that would be the bad thing the leak within the soyuz itself but assuming it's the soyuz not the soyuz leaking and then get ready to close the hatch of the soyuz and then once we know for sure that we have a safe haven then We do a calculation as to how many minutes before the station drops below a level that's critical. Uh, And we call that T reserve, the reserve time. Mm. And once we know how much T reserve we have, then we can decide whether it's good to go fight the leak or not. And if you have a little bit of time, then we would race forward and start slamming hatches shut Uh, and starting at the far end and work our way back and hopefully you could isolate the part of the station that's leaking. And if you could isolate it, of course, then that area would would immediately bleed down to vacuum, but the rest Mm -hmm. of the station would be okay. But our number one objective is crew safety. Number two objective is vehicle safety, and we work it in that order. And the rest of the time, I mean, if a great big piece of something fell out of the sky and slammed into the space station, that's no different than a great big piece of something falling out of the sky and slamming into Canberra. I mean, it's just, it's something that might happen someday, but, but we don't, uh, you don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. I mean, the earth gets hit by a hundred tons of meteorite every day, hundred tons of, of rock from the universe slams into the world mm. every day. Um, and it's it's just one of the one of the risks of life, and, and you just have to accept it. You can spend your whole life cowering under your bed, but that's not even going to protect you anyway. So mm. so you just live with the risk. Your own actions you can take, and then uh, move on and and you know, do what's important.
0: Do you think that you have a different kind of relationship to robots and machines than terrestrial? people do because you are so heavily reliant on them when you're in space.
1: My p- opinion is probably skewed because uh, I grew up on a farm and, and so I grew up with big heavy machinery and, and getting right into the guts of it with my hands so I know how the big beasts work and then I started flying airplanes as a, as a teenager and so I've been flying airplanes and it's, it's as if someone puts wings on your back. Airplanes are an extension of your own body so that now suddenly you can do something you couldn't otherwise. You, you can fly, you know, uh, and you can wow. soar and go straight up and tumble and twist. And, and that um, machine-given freedom I think does change your perspective a little bit. You, you recognize the kinship you have to have with the machine, and it's an extension of your hands and arms and thoughts, mm. and that allows you then to, to go and do something that you couldn't otherwise. And I've taken that to the nth degree of riding three different rocket ships, and, and leaving the planet, and, and then living aboard a machine that keeps us alive um, for, for half a year. And then even being outside on a spacewalk, where you have a, a one-person... Mm suit that is basically a one-person spaceship a machine that you are intimately familiar with every little valve and and, and plumbing uh, characteristic but that's uh, your life as well and and so I, I still view them as machines but i recognize that they're almost like uh, like a big horse or a trusted dog or a uh, or a team of dogs. They allow you to do something that you couldn't do otherwise, and so they they deserve some respect and and maybe a little bit of love.
0: So speaking of the love, um, up among the the more than 23,000 catalogued objects larger than 10 centimeters in Earth orbit, there's many whole spacecraft that are very historic from the early days of space exploration. and many, many other spacecraft that have various degrees of significance, Let's just hypothesize that all space junk, all non-functioning spacecraft were going to be destroyed tomorrow, and if you were asked to choose one historic spacecraft, or not even historic, just your favorite spacecraft to preserve from all of that junk, which one would it be?
1: I'm not much of a nostalgia guy, I haven't really thought about, where. I don't have any favorite space junk. I don't even know what's still up there, is Sputnik still up there, is Alouette still up there? Alouette is still up there. Oh, Alouette, then. I'll go with Alouette. Which, which is the first Canadian satellite put into space. It was, we were the third nation. I'm a Canadian, and, and Canada was the third nation to have a, an orbiting satellite in space. And and it was only supposed to last one year, and it continued to function for ten years. And uh, and it, it paved the way for everything else. So, in that case, I'm glad to hear it's still up there.
0: It is. It's one of my favorites, actually. So
1: I'd love to stick a big catcher's mitt up there and safely bring it back and, and uh, and to be able to uh, to recognize, or actually to show people what, what was our original mm. pathfinder, what blazed the way for everything that's come behind, at least for my nation.
0: So many people think that Canada would be a very good model for how Australia should look at its future directions in space. What do you think are some of the factors that have made Canada so successful, especially given that you don't have a, a native launch capability?
1: Uh, canada has has always looked for parts of it that we can we can succeed at we can excel at that makes sense for us we 're like australia we 're a small population and a big land and and so communication for us is difficult we 're also closer to the magnetic pole than a lot of other countries, and so we're quite interested in upper atmospheric physics, and why do we have northern lights? Why do you have southern lights? And so for those reasons, Canada has developed technology in upper atmospheric physics in uh, relaying communications. We lead the world in in relaying communications across our whole country. And then also in remote sensing to be able to map and understand our country. And we've chosen those three things because they make sense for our particular Mm. combination of of, um, land size and population, Um, but also because they challenge our universities and they challenge our businesses. And then once we develop the expertise, we sell it to the rest of the world. And it's worked really well for Canada. And but we've also recognized that people need to be inspired and and young people need to be inspired by something that is right on the edge of possible. Otherwise, why would they push themselves? And right now, as a Canadian, if you want to command a spaceship, it's a career option. That's that's a pretty enabling thing for a 10-year-old kid thinking of... Gosh, am I going to go to university? Am I going to learn to speak French? Am I going to learn to scuba dive? Should I learn to fly? What, what should I do with my mm. life? If they can look down the road and go, wow, look at some of the things that Canadians do. It's, it's a really enabling thing. And uh, Canada has been right in the thick of it since 1957, the International Geophysical Year. And as a result, we flew our first satellite in the early 60s. But we've always done it cooperatively with other countries, which I think is a really good way to do it as well. You don't have to be completely self-standing, that, mm. that you don't have to absorb all of the cost yourself. And I think Canada's done it really well. And we've flown eight Canadians in space and uh, and have two people training now as part of the NASA Astronaut Corps on exchange in our governmental mm. agreements. And it provides a lot of opportunity uh, at the business level, at the scientific university level, and I think at the... Uh, at the personal inspirational level.
0: Now, the United Nations has emphasized the importance of making space more accessible to those who are frequently excluded from it, like non spacefaring faring nations, uh, the developing world, and women and indigenous people. Do you have any thoughts on how this could be achieved?
1: Gosh, I think you put women in that list. The director of the Johnson Space Center is Eleanor Choa and the chief of flight cooperations for all of NASA is Janet Cavandi. And the uh, chief astronaut for the NASA astronaut mm-hmm. corps for the last many years has been Peggy Whitson, and uh, Sonny Williams commanded the International Space Station, and Pam Melroy commanded the space shuttle.
0: I'm just quoting the United Nations here. This is this is part of one of their declarations.
1: I know, but I think it just shows a um, uh, an inaccurate bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You could easily make the bias the other way. How come men don't have any leadership positions within the NASA astronaut program? I mean, it's uh, the opportunity is immensely there and, and and fully seized. It's not one of those things you can decree. You can't decree that, uh, that people who are unqualified should be able to do things. You instead need to give people opportunity and allow them to gain the qualifications and then allow them to excel. And that is what has happened through the space program Mm -hmm. and through the space business. And uh, it's up to individual nations to decide how much of their gross domestic product. They want to spend on um, on everything, on agriculture and on health and welfare and on science and research and research and development and, and even space applications. I mean, you could say the same domestically. How come all Canadians don't have a chance to fly in space? Well, it's available to people, but it takes a huge amount of personal drive and effort to accomplish it. And then it is available to people. Uh, eventually, I suppose, with, with cheaper launch capability and such, it'll become more readily available to people.
0: So you've just taken up a position as an adjunct professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada. What excites you particularly about the prospect of teaching and is there anything that you wish someone had taught you when you were a student?
1: I've been a teacher most of my life. Uh, I've been uh, teaching in schools for the whole 22 years since I started being an astronaut. I've spoken in probably a thousand schools Mm -hmm. and I really think it's a necessary thing. If someone has taken the time to teach you something, if, if someone has written things so that you learn a new skill, so that you now have a level of expertise, you have a fundamental obligation to try and pass it on to somebody else. And now that I've retired from um, the government, I was 35 years working for the Canadian government, in the military and then as an astronaut. Now it gives me some freedom of choice. And so I'm really pleased to be working with the University of Waterloo. I'm only an adjunct professor, just part-time, but I think it'll become more and more over time. And I really hope to be able to keep someone else from having to learn something through trial and error. You know, try and show them the practicality of the experiences I've had and, and the understanding of theory that I have and see if maybe uh, they can they can learn something directly from my own experience rather than having to figure it out for themselves. And I, I guess something that took me a while to learn as a student, and that is the necessity to be self-determined in learning, mm-hmm. to recognize that the purpose of being in the classroom is not to wait until someone gives you an assignment and then do exercises 8 through 14 and page 126. That, that's not success. The, the success is, is why are we learning this thing? Um, who wrote this book that I'm learning from? Uh, why did they write it this way? How can I go through it so that I actually get out of this the tools that they were trying to give me? You know, it's, it's a proactive thing. And then you come away from having learned something with, with a new set of capabilities and a new understanding and a new depth. And seeing that that the student has an important role in learning uh, was something that didn't occur to me until I was just finishing high school. Mm. When one of my uh, my senior high school instructors sort of pointed out why textbooks are the way they are and that somebody wrote this textbook and it's a book and you, you should read it starting on page one. Mm. Um, the whole interactive side of things. Uh, I think is something that is, if you can get a student to realize that early on, if they can recognize that they are the con- the main control of their, uh, of what they're going to get out of the classes that they're in, then then I think the whole thing becomes much more efficient. And it's something I try and really encourage at the outset when I'm, when I'm teaching.
0: I'm going to tell my students that on Monday, I'm going to tell them Chris Hadfield said. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Thanks.